0: With me, if you will, Revelation chapter 16, Revelation 16 and verse 10, this is God's word, Revelation 16 verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like, like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray that you would now open it to our eyes, that you would illumine our hearts, that you would grant to us understanding, that we might not just know it, but that we might know you. Cause us to see Jesus today, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I mentioned last week, as we began looking at the seven bowls, looking at the first four, that our tendency is to see these as singular worldwide events for each one, or a singular worldwide event for each one. And yet, as we've talked about, as we've gone through Revelation, uh, Revelation is apocalyptic in its nature in terms of the type of literature that it is. It's also an epistle written to the seven churches in Asia. And so John is here using symbols to help us understand what is happening, what will happen. Uh, and so symbols are to be understood symbolically. Uh, this takes a lot of wisdom, and there's a lot of disagreement as to what symbols may mean, but one of the things that becomes clear as we move through the bowls is that they are symbolic, and that is especially true for the last three. The first four bowls are poured out on the four segments of creation. They each fall on the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky. And in these final three, we see a shift to the spiritual realm or to the satanic realm where these bowls of wrath are poured out on those who are Satan's, those who belong to him, those who follow him. And one of the things that we've talked about is how the intensity ramps up as the end nears. We also see the distinguishing line between good and evil become all the more clear. Uh, that there is uh, very, uh, it's, it's very clear to see where e- there is evil. The lines are not blurred. So look with me now, if you will, in verse 10. The fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Clearly symbolic because the beast is symbolic. As we saw in chapter 13, the beast emerged from the sea, representing the kingdoms of the world, the governing authorities of Satan, And this is now pictured as a throne. And so the idea is that Satan has a power. And we know because of our study in Revelation, earlier in our study as well as in other passages that we've looked at, Satan is on a leash. He's not just... Uh, free to go. He, there's a, 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 he's already experienced some of the judgment. We saw that when he was cast out from heaven, that he is no longer able to stand before the throne, to go before the throne of God and accuse the brethren. Now, he still accuses us, but he no longer has that access. Why? Because Jesus is now seated there, having accomplished, uh, he can no longer go to the Father and say, uh, why are you letting these people away from their, with their sin? You know, Satan often uses the truth, and that was what he would do. But now Christ has died for the sins of his people, and so he no longer has that right. And yet, here it is pictured, his power is pictured as this throne. Uh, this is not, I, I don't think this is a singular throne. It's, it's, a, it's singular in the sense of the symbol and what it represents but not in the sense of the way it's been portrayed in, in some novels and movies and so forth, as if it will come from necessarily a one-world government that takes over. That could happen. I'm not saying that it won't happen. Uh, but I think Satan is much more subversive, and we already see, both in history and in our own day, his power at work in and through governing authorities. Uh, that uh, we can even think of our own country, Uh, we see throughout history kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and enter into the books to be known no more. So the kingdom of the beast then is plunged into darkness, and I think this too is clearly a spiritual darkness, not a literal darkness that we saw like the plague that it alludes to in Egypt. It was the ninth plague of darkness. We also might think of the fourth trumpet, Uh, That was the uh, judgment of partial darkness. So the literal event that happened at the time of Egypt points to a spiritual event. I think most most of us can identify or understand is current even in our own day. Interesting as we think of the Egyptian plague that the current pharaoh at the time, Ra, was thought to be an incarnation of the sun god. And so this particular plague of darkness fell not only to judge the land and the people, but was an affront to Pharaoh himself that he was not in power over creation. And yet, as I mentioned, the darkness is clearly spiritual as well. The kingdoms of man deteriorate as they abandon God's ways and rebel against him personally. We might call this a decline of culture. We might have other euphemisms for this but we see it even in our own day. In John's day, the churches in Asia, what would they have been thinking of when they read of this? Immediately, they would have thought of Rome, and understandably so, because for the most part, even though there are exceptions, Rome as an empire opposed Christianity. There are horrible tales of the persecution against Christians, and the the, the, the idea of the throne continues through his allusion to Babylon the Great, which we'll see a little bit later in this text and then further on in Revelation. In other words, it isn't just about Rome. That in, that, in their day, they understood it in that context, but it's certainly not Rome in our day. Rome has no power except for tourists. You know, It's, it's just a place that you go see, uh, see old stuff. Uh, the empire, the powers and authority look different today, but Satan's schemes don't change. They're the same. He works in the same way. Um, So it's not just Rome. It's all empires throughout church history that oppose Christ. And yet when we think of Rome, we can understand then the trajectory that kingdoms are on and the trajectory they follow as they Stand in rebellion against their creator. Where they will end up, they will end up just like Rome. Any nation that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness becomes foolish. Their hearts becoming uh, darkened as they become futile in their thinking. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. We often think of that in an individual sense of people, but it's also true in a corporate sense of kingdoms and empires. And haven't we seen that throughout history? As they exchange the truth of God for a lie, God judges them by giving them up to their own desires. That's not a new thing. We see that in the Old Testament as well. That was a means of God's judgment to give them up to their own desires. And we currently see this in our own society. And often then the society implodes. Why? Well, there's fracturing. Moral relativism leads to that. Uh, It devolves often into meaninglessness and destruction because it doesn't have the support system on which to stand. And if this sounds personal, it is because we, I believe, are seeing the same thing happen in our own nation. And this is not talking about just, you know, the good old days or I like the way things were when I was growing up or or anything like that, but it's actually talking about the structures that support the freedoms uh, that we have and allow them to exist that have eroded as people continue to turn away from their creator in rebellion. And so this isn't unique to any one culture in time and history. Again, Satan's not creative. He's, he's, he's He's a copycat. He's a mocker. He's an imitator. He's a counterfeit. And he does pretty much the same thing over and over and over. He goes to Adam and Eve. Did God really say... And then he follows that up with, God's not really good, you can't trust him. And he's doing the same thing today, both on an individual level. Isn't that often how he comes to us in our pain and our suffering? Did God really say, and is he really good, or would he allow this to happen to you? And he does that certainly to us on a corporate level again. Now, one of the things that we're tempted to do when we think of the judgment and the decline of culture and the deterioration of our world around us is to kind of lift our noses a little bit, and look down upon all those foolish people that God is clearly judging for their rejection of him as their creator. And I want to remind us again, as I have the last few weeks, this should not be so. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be on that same path of destruction. He plucked us from our path of destruction. Not because of any good thing we did or any, anything we had merited or any great characteristic in ourselves. But solely because of his love and in mercy, he saved us. And so, where that ought to take us is humility. That as we look at the world that is declining around us, may we not do so with an air of superiority or an air of uh, any sense of mockery, but may we do so with grief and with humility that they need the grace of God. And so, as we think about the, the darkness, that this is being described of us here, all the more reason that we should shine the light of Christ, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, and to do so with grace and humility and kindness and compassion. And so may we be humbled in our great salvation. The sixth bowl in verse 12 is poured out upon the Euphrates River, and this might sound like it's another aspect of creation, but we see pretty quickly that the Euphrates is symbolic as well. It is done so that, the, or, or in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east to come. And then beyond that, we see the symbols of the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and then from them come these frogs. And if we thought that that was all going to be literal, then we're told that the frogs are actually symbolic of demonic spirits. Their goal is to enlist the kings of the worldly empires to gather, and that gathering is called the great day of God Almighty. The location is told to us, it is Armageddon, which is Hebrew for the Mount of Megiddo or the Mountain of Megiddo. So you got all that. Let's go on to the next one because that's all really clear. Um, Now, how do we understand all of that? There's a lot of stuff in this sixth bowl. Let's see if we can unpack it. First, a number of allusions, as we've already seen in the other bowls, to the Exodus story and the plagues that we saw there. The drying up of the Euphrates makes us think of what? the drying up of the Red Sea, so that the Israelites could pass. Here, it's for the kings from the east. And almost everything we see in Scripture coming from the east is usually bad. So it's it's the opposite of salvation. It's actually judgment that's coming here. Of course, the frogs cause us to think of the second plague in Egypt in which the country was overrun by frogs. I often think of that now that we live in Florida, especially in the season when all the frogs suddenly appear. And you don't know which are the good ones and which are the bad ones and... They just look gross when they 're like in the dark and they 're right there with the eye you know looking at you. What must the Egyptians have experienced there uh, secondly, so we think of the the Exodus account, secondly the euphrates it 's called the great River, that was the geographical division between Israel and all of those who were to her east, and her greatest enemies were to her east. Think of Assyria, think of Babylon. Both nations that carried her away into exile. Israel was ultimately delivered, interestingly enough, from Babylonian captivity by a kingdom even further to the east. King Cyrus came from the Persian Empire, and a pagan god, or uh, sorry, a pagan king rather, is used by God to deliver his people. Isaiah 44 recounts how he diverted the waters of the Euphrates so that his army could pass over. He literally dammed the waters up so that they could walk across on dry ground. And yet, as Isaiah reminds us in that passage, it was God who was at work, even using a pagan king to deliver his people. Um, This has correlation to the cross, to our redemption. There's so many overlapping things, and we we just have to understand John has this in mind as he is writing these words, and specifically as he later refers to Babylon the Great, that this was part of what he was thinking. Third, the vision of the frogs paint the picture of Satan's counterfeit trinity, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We've talked about this briefly. We'll look at it again when it comes up again, but... It, you know, it, it's not necessarily plain uh, when you first read through Revelation, but when you think about the correlation that is being set up here in this Trinity, uh, that Satan is, again, a counterfeit. He is He's mocking God. And so the dragon representing Satan, God the Father, the beast uh, representing the Son, we think of the fake resurrection in Revelation 13, There are a number of other accounts that link that, the beast representing the sun somehow. And then the false prophet, his role was to lead the people to worship the beast. And that's what the Holy Spirit's role is. One of his roles for us is to lead us to worship Christ. And so there is clearly a a, a counterfeit uh, of the true trinity there. Fourth, and this may be of interest uh, even more so, there is no mountain mountain. Megiddo or mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain and if you've ever been to Israel you have seen that it's just a big flat plain. Now it's surrounded by mountains, there are mountains around it but none of them are called Mount Megiddo and so I think this points clearly to something that is symbolic. But what is interesting is to consider the Old Testament summary of the plain of Megiddo. And Rick Phillips is helpful here, and I'm just going to read from him because it's so succinct. He writes, overlooking it, speaking the plain of Megiddo, overlooking it on one side was Mount Tabor, from which Deborah and Barak launched their assault on the Canaanites. Across the valley was Mount Gilboa, where King Saul was slain by the Philistines. Behind Megiddo itself was Mount Carmel, where Elijah conquered the false priests of Baal in service to Jezebel. It was in this plain that Gideon blew his trumpet and overthrew the Midianites. It was also here that Israel's last godly king, Josiah, died in battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Derek Thomas then writes, It is then altogether appropriate that Megiddo should symbolize the location of the battle of the Lord against the forces of darkness and that the final cataclysmic battle should be pictured as taking place here because it was the battlefield of Israel. So Armageddon isn't necessarily pointing to a future literal battle in which all of the armies of the world will gather together on what is quite literally a plain too impossible in size to contain even a portion of the world's armies. Uh, Many armies have fought there, but when you think of the world's armies by today's standard, there's no way that that could uh, fit. Instead... This represents the final battle. There is a final battle coming. It's just not, it's, it's not pictured like armies and tanks and, and, and planes and so forth having it out on a little patch over in Palestine. Instead, it represents the battle of the evil rulers of the earth submitting to their leader Satan against God's people. In other words, the final battle will be under the guise that the church is about to be destroyed. I don't know what that's going to look like. We all want to know what that will look like. God has not revealed what that will look like, and we just have to be okay with that. I become more nervous when people tell me they know what it's going to look like or they figured out what it's going to look like than I have uh, hearing from people who say, yeah, I'm just not sure. We, we don't know. So many things could develop. I mean, this could happen. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the hearers of these letters, as they were read to them 2,000 years ago, had no comprehension of what our world would look like today, let alone the technology. And we have no idea what the world will look like in another 2,000 years were the Lord to tarry. So we don't need to figure out what all the details are. The point is what we see happening is what's going to happen. What it's going to look like, we just have to leave that alone. What do we see happening? Well, uh, the church is about to be destroyed. We've already seen that described in the seals and the trumpets uh, in the intermissions in between those, and now we see it happening again. But as it appears, the church is about to be destroyed, the great deliverer shows up. And this is again why I think God uses here in the bowls of wrath the image of the Exodus. Because it looked like his people were never going to get out of Egypt, they had been there for 400 years. It looked impossible. And then the plagues start coming. And you'd think the first plague would have done the trick. And it seemed like it did, but then Pharaoh relented. And then the second, and then the third, and then the fourth, and on and on and on and on to the point that if you and I were there among the Israelites making those bricks, we would have thought there's no chance. That's what God has in mind. That's what he's communicating here. When we feel like that, when the church looks like it's going to be destroyed, when it seems impossible, God is going to show up and deliver them and destroy his enemies. So John tells us, and it's actually the words of Jesus that are, that are uh, uh, kind of slipped into this parenthetical phrase in verse 15. Don't be surprised. You and I should not be surprised. We should not become so undone. We should not be filled with such anxiety. We should not be so consumed with what is happening in the world that we feel hopeless. Because we know that it will never be too late. Because before it's too late, Christ will come and save his church. Jesus says to us, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Be alert. Don't get caught up in complacency of just living the life that the world tells us that we're to live. Pursue... Pleasure, pursue uh, you know, comfort, get all that you can out of this life because this is all that we get. Don't get seduced into following that pattern. Instead, stay awake, stay clothed. There's a double meaning here. The first, maybe the most obvious meaning is clothed in Christ's righteousness. We know that's how we are saved, that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We are covered in our guilt and shame. He clothes us with his righteousness so that we can stand before God. But second, it refers again back to the Exodus account. On that Passover night, the Israelites did what? After they painted the blood on the doorpost. They left their clothes on. They left their travel clothes on because they were told their deliverer was coming. That's the image that's being painted here on. Keep your travel clothes on because he's coming. Don't become so consumed by what's happening that you think this life and this world is over so the sixth bowl, then, is a symbol of God's vindicating judgment on those who have persecuted his people. Although it paints a picture of increasing hostility against those who trust Christ, it reveals the ultimate defeat of those who re- rebel against God in the end. Now, we've talked about the fact that they're parallel accounts, seals, troll, uh, trumpets, bowls. They're telling of the same events. And so we've already seen all the overlap. We won't, see that again, or won't go into all that again. Certainly true. Uh, with the seventh of each, that this is now the end. That's exactly what we'd expect, and that's exactly what we see. As with the seventh seal and the and the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl brings the end. Now, I mentioned last week that this time, uh, at this time, the mercy of God expires, and I want to clarify what I mean by that. I had a question, thought it was a good question. Uh, when does God's mercy expire? There are two times that God's mercy will expire for us. One is in death. When we die, that's it. We don't get a second chance after we die. Um, That's um, made clear in the writer of Hebrews uh, 9.27. What's interesting, though, is in the next verse, which I often read 9.27, but the next verse, which is the same sentence, the writer continues on, he speaks of the return of Christ. That's the other opportunity for the mercy of God to expire. When Christ returns, when he appears, the opportunity for repentance is gone. Up until his return, there is still the opportunity for repentance and faith. But after he returns in judgment, that opportunity is expired. Let me read that passage from Hebrews. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so in that same sentence, he goes on to describe both death and both the return of Christ being the end. There is no escape after that. Now the fourth, or the, 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 the seventh bowl, rather, is poured out into the air. Uh, again, symbolic picture, what, what does the air not touch? <laughs> the air touches everything. Everything is dependent on the air. Everything is affected by the air. In other words, this final judgment that comes at the end, nothing will escape it. Additionally, we know Satan is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. And this final judgment falls on him and all who follow him. All of Satan's works will be judged. All who follow him will be judged in the end. With the outpouring of the seventh bowl comes the voice from the temple, it is done. And what does that sound like? We read it this morning. Um, the words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. What is interesting, though, it is, it is it means it is done, but it's the converse of what Christ proclaimed on the cross. Now, John wrote the account, the gospel account, that has this, uh, the, 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 the tetelestai. The, it is finished in the gospel account. So he wrote the gospel, he wrote Revelation. And so it's helpful, then, to understand that this is coming from the same writer. To Tetelestai is that uh, Greek word that means it is completed, it is finished. We understand it to mean that sin and death have been conquered, that our sins have been atoned for. It was done. Here, in Revelation 16, 17, John uses the Greek word genomai, which means to become or to be brought to past. So they both have the idea of completion with it. One is the end of sin and death. And here is the completion or what we call the consummation of the kingdom that it is now full, fully and finally realized. Everything that we're longing for, everything that we're hoping for, everything that we desire in our redemption will, be, will arrive. It'll be here. It'll be done. Finally, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been saved From the power of sin, we will finally be saved from the presence of sin. In this final act of judgment, it will be eradicated. Remember with the seventh seal, there was the silence of awe. And with the seventh trumpet, there was uh, this proclaimed, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so now this dovetails in with those two pictures. It is done. The kingdom is here. In verses 18 and 19 is this picture of incredible destruction. It's the ultimate shock and awe, beginning with the lightning and the thunder. Then John envisions this earthquake as there had never been since man was on the earth. I find it interesting John words it in this way because he doesn't just say it's the biggest earthquake ever. He says it's the biggest earthquake since man has been on earth. And so my mind... Not that I want to read anything into this, but I have to ask, when was there an earthquake before man was on earth? Well, the greatest earthquakes would have been before man was on earth, when God was making the earth, when he was separating the water from the sea. And so what we actually see here is the beginning of the recreation. In Peter's exhortation to his people as he's writing his epistle, his second epistle, he is exhorting them to live holy lives. But he reminds them it's because of what is to come. And he says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the beginning. And as the final judgment comes, it is the new heavens and the new earth that are being ushered in, which necessitates then the removal of the whole old heavens and the old earth. So this earthquake is so great that islands and mountains disappear. That's a pretty big deal. Even if you say, Seth, you're saying everything's symbolic, symbolic, it's, just, it's absolutely clear. The earth is being changed. It is being reborn, remade, new creations, new heavens, new earth. Now, John's going to get into this in much greater detail as we move through Revelation. And there's a lot of hope at the end of Revelation. And I've had several of you come up to me and say, I can't wait just to get to heaven in Revelation, right? Just to get to that portion that talks about heaven. We're going to get there. We're close. But we've got to survive here this telling of what is to come, of the judgment. Hundred-pound hailstones. Who could survive such a thing? What's interesting is not so much the symbol of this complete destruction. 100-pound hailstones, that's going to pretty much take care of everything, as if the great earthquake erasing mountains and islands would not do it. What is being described here, its I think more important to understand, is what's happening to the people. That even as the hailstones fall, and even as their certain death comes, they continue to curse God. Um, They continue to call out and, uh, you know... Uh, defame him. What is happening here is that they are validating the judgment itself. Because every judgment that has preceded this final judgment, every act of God that we see today, which is a reminder that we are not God, that someone else is, and that he is powerful over all creation and all matters of man... All of those things are to point us to to, to acknowledge God for who he is. And as we have denied as a people every one of those things, now comes the final judgment. And rather than turning and repenting in that moment of final judgment, they curse God and validate the judgment that falls on them. And with that, the bowls are done, and God has proven that he will overlook no sin, but has remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God. Babylon is, of course, just a faint memory in the books of history, but in Revelation and other parts of Scripture, it continues to be a symbol for the worldly systems that stand in opposition to God. And so here we see every act of injustice, every act of oppression, indeed every single sin God remembers. And because he remembers, he judges, and because he's holy, and because he loves us, no sin will escape. And so you may be wondering, what about your sin? What about my sin? Doesn't God remember all of my sin? Will not he hold me accountable for all the things that I've done wrong? Shouldn't I fear this judgment that is portrayed in Revelation 16? And I will say today to all who are trusting in Christ that the table that is spread before us is the evidence that God will remember our sins no more. If you are not trusting in Christ, then yes. Yeah, Revelation 16 should startle you. And good. Let let it call you to God to trust Him so that you can escape that judgment. But to you and I who are trusting in Christ... He will remember our sins no more. In Jeremiah 31, God speaks of the new covenant, the new covenant that this table is the sign of. And he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. While God will remember the sins of those who have rejected him, He will bring the just judgment on those who have refused to believe and rebelled against Him. He took His wrath and poured out upon His Son that judgment for you and me who are trusting in Christ. And He remembers our sins no more. The table of the Lord does not declare that He has done His part and we must now do our part. No, this table declares to us today, it is finished. It is complete. It is done. The table humbles us. As we've said, we are recipients of grace alone. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it. None of us contributed to it. The table fills our hearts with gratefulness because God has done what we could not do for ourselves in atoning for our sins. The table moves us to live in the same way that our Savior lived, laying down our lives for others in humble thankfulness. The table of our Lord says to us today, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And so as we come to the table, may we be grateful today that the wrath of God, which we all deserve, has fallen instead on Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you and for me. The wrath that is coming is horrendous. It is scary. It is startling for any whose sins have not been forgiven. But for us who are resting in the finished work of Christ, this table speaks to us today and says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Let's pray. Lord, I I do pray that we would get this. I pray for the one today who has yet to believe that they would see their need for a Savior. Not just the fear of final judgment, but even the eternal judgment that follows the final judgment. That that's what our sins deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, by grace in Christ Jesus, is given to us so that we who trust him in faith are saved. So would you help both the unbeliever today see their need? Would you call them, would you put new life in their heart and bring them to saving faith? Lord, would you also cause everyone here who is trusting in Christ to see that it is done, that it is completed, that it is finished, both Tetelestai and both Genomai. We long for the day when the reality of Genomai is here, that the kingdom will have come, but we know that it is certain that you have made the promise and that you will surely bring it to pass. And that changes, it should change how we live our lives, Lord. We're so tempted to live our lives as the world does. Would you shake us and wake us from that slumber that we might steward the days that you've given us well? that we might live as lights in the darkness, the fragrant aroma of the grace by which we've been saved, ready to give an answer to those who ask, why is it that you hope in Christ? Would you help us in this way? Lord, even as we prepare to come to the table, would you feed and nourish us with the truth and the hope of the gospel so that we might be equipped to live as pleasing unto you? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.